Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The murder of Diane Delia, Wednesday, October 7th, 1981, Yonkers, New York. Warning, the following episode you're about to listen to will contain evidence of misgendering. Listening discretion is advised. To call all of this bizarre would be an understatement. It was a bizarre love triangle. She wants a job as a boyfriend. I think in her mind she was gonna change him. But that wasn't gonna happen. Did you know queer, queer? It's not cut and dry. It's not black and white. It's not hater and victim. I know that he was there and then Wednesday, October 7th, 1981. It's Yonkers, New York, a suburb of Manhattan. 24-year-old post-operative transgender female, Diane Delia, was reached out to by her estranged husband, Bobby Ferrer, age 22, cisgendered white male. The two had this five-year on-again, off-again love story like no other. They met back around 1977. The two had met at a club in Yonkers called Zippers. The couple had really began to grow close working at Zippers together. Bobby as the bartender, Diane as the dancer and diva. Diane chose her name in homage to Diana Ross. And her friends who remember her fondly will share stories about how she had surgery to, you know, resemble Diane, uh, Diana, and how she was so impressed with this beautiful cisgendered superstar. Well, Diana was just as important as Diane. And Diane became famous too. She was known for her beautiful impersonations on stage and as her friends remember her, known for her sequences. Diana and Bobby had this interesting love story. Bobby, who was 
more bisexual, had this push and pull. He was attracted to cis women, but he was also attracted to cis men. So when Diana first met Bobby, she met him as John Delia. And in some of the audio recordings we're going to hear throughout this episode, you will hear the mentioning of the name John. And that name is very symbolic because it ties into the interwovenness of who Diana was and who she became as so many others um, throughout her life and even after. But as we go through this case in season two, episode one, I'm so happy to have you all here with me. As we prepare to go through this case today, I really want us to think about this concept of if I can't have you. This episode is really going to talk about this history of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, a tale of greed, lust, you name it. As you heard, it has been described as a bizarre love triangle and that it is my friends in every sense of the word, but in the best sense of the word as well, because everyone in this case in their own way was really proud to be themselves. We have to think about this time period of the time that Diana initially went missing on October 7th of 1981, which has been now over 40 years ago. That was one of the reasons that I wanted to really begin season two with this case. When I heard about Diana's case many years ago, which I'm referring to through the 1980s Deadly Is Decade um, show, Death of Disco. Please check it out if you have not. It's a beautiful episode, and there'll be a lot of reference from that. But I've, I saw that episode, and I remember thinking about this, this, this woman, this beautiful trans woman, and, and she actually, in her own right, was making momentous change. She modeled for Avon. You know, uh, there's a there's a beautiful photo of that time. And I mean, you know, my friends, it's just really interesting. It's just really interesting when we think about like how this, this beautiful woman had made so much change and growth and to see her life taken so brutally at just the age of 24, it's so heartbreaking. And so I wanted to be able to talk about this case and talk about this idea of when we think of homicides, especially towards our trans community, so many times we feel that it's oftentimes just at the hands of someone we don't know. But we do have cases in our communities where it is by the hands of loved ones. And this case involves a couple of loved ones. One, again, is Diane's husband, Bobby. But there's another Rob, or Bob, a Robin Arnold, 26, cisgendered female. She came from a wealthy family out of Manhattan and um, met John at that time in 1979. So this was a couple of years after Diane and Bobby had met. But at that time, she had initially met Diane as John. And when she did, uh, the two had begun a friendship. And that friendship then led to a relationship. The reason why they formed a romantic relationship, you may be wondering, is because around the earlier part of 1979, March, 
Bobby was arrested and he was arrested for going AWOL. Bobby Ferrara was a member of the US Navy and he had fled California where he was stationed and returned to New York and began working at Zippers, which is where he met Diane. And, um, and then he was then recaptured and um, arrested and then later dishonorably discharged. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that too, right? Military and mental health and just all of these different things, right? Because we have to look at this time period. There was Vietnam, which Bob, Bobby went in there around 1975 into the U.S. Navy. So there's this whole, you know, piece of those triggers and those traumas. And then he was also bisexual. So we're going to think of all these different pieces that are going to come together you know and how all of this was a recipe for you know this 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 hateful homicide of Diane Delia and it's just really heartbreaking but let's dive a little bit more into the specifics of what happened on the night of October 7th 1981 well it was a typical night Diane had been married to Bobby at that time for probably about two months, give or take. The two had initially had a beautiful marriage and it was going well. But then Bobby's bisexuality, by curiosity maybe, led to him wanting to be back with cis men. So Diana at this point, who had undergone gender reassignment surgery back in November of 1980, on um, by, you know, to be quite honest, because of Robin Arnold, who was very wealthy and was able to provide that financial resource. And then also gave Bobby money as well to pay for the engagement ring and wedding ring. So when we think about this case, we see how everyone just involves themselves so much into the life of Diane. Um, you know, not only did she have this surgery that Robin paid for, but then Bobby marries her. And so this should be a joyous time for Diane. She should be at the happiest of her life. Married, she's, you know, had her gender reassignment surgery. There's so much hope for the future. And then on October 7th of 1981, she disappears. She goes out and meets with Bobby. The two wanted to talk about their marriage. They had been having some issues and that resulted in initially Diane going to stay with Robin. The two had been rooming together, especially when they were engaged from 1980, uh, early 1980, February 1980, until about um, that October of 1980, which is when um, Bobby returned. And so what we have happened here is that this beautiful young woman who has went missing um, you know, she's going to meet her estranged husband. She's staying with his, you know, with her, with their friend, Robin. And as a result of this, you know, her and Robin has a disagreement. There's this gentleman that Robin and Diane, at this point, they had this routine of where they would kind of compete for men. And, um... On this particular night, Vincent um, was the gentleman at night in September of 1981, just a couple of weeks before Diane went missing. And there was a party and 
you know, both Robin and Diane was competing for this attention and Robin ultimately made a statement of my vagina is real, Diane's isn't. And as a result, um, you know, Diane and Robin had a falling out. Diane did turn to, you know, another woman, um, cisgendered woman, and that infuriated Robin because Robin in her mind, right, this wealthy cisgendered um, female of privilege felt that she had not only paid for Diane's, you know, gender reassignment surgery, she had accepted Diane, helped her with her um, her uh, female impersonation performances and drag performances. She definitely endorsed that on costumes as we're going to hear more about this case. And so for Diane to then get involved with another cisgendered woman sexually or in any other way, really infuriated Robin. So not only do you have Diane who is involved with cis men and cis women, right? So this is upsetting her husband, Bobby, who's upset about the fact that she's with cis men, other men. And then you have her best friend, Robin, who's now upset about the fact that not only are they still competing for cis men themselves, but then now Diane has had this sexual encounter on Robin's couch with a cis woman And so by October 7th of 1981, by that Wednesday night, both Robin and Bobby wanted to talk to Diana. Diane had moved out of Robin's after that incident and she had moved in with a good friend of hers by the name of Gary. And you'll hear Gary um, speak fondly of Diane. He also does refer to Diane um, as John um, in some of the audio as well, um, just on those memories um, before um, Diane became Diane. And so you see this fondness and this loveliness, but that is where Diane was staying on the night of October 7, 1981, when she received that phone call um, to Gary's apartment from Bobby saying, hey, we need to talk. We need to figure out what's going on with our marriage. Um, Bobby felt that his marriage was pretty much falling apart. He didn't want to lose Diane. Robin didn't want to lose Diane. So the goal was the intention, according to Bobby, which is what he told Diane, who told Gary before she left, was they were going to all try to talk it out, figure out how to move forward. And ultimately for Diane, that was moving forward without them. She felt that uh, both of them were smothering her. She felt that both of them wanted to control her, Robin more so financially, and Bobby more so sexually. Um, He definitely was not the most intimate with Diane after she had her surgery. And so this this beautiful young trans woman who's had this gender reassignment surgery, who has these needs of her own, is not getting them met by her husband. And so then, unfortunately, this leads to this pivotal point of her turning to other men because her husband doesn't want her in that way. But he didn't want her with anyone else. So you have this really push and pull of where they just they didn't want Diane but they didn't want anyone else to have her but for Diane she was done she was out of this whole game of chess and she wanted to move forward with her life again she had went to Montreal um, and done a beautiful campaign uh, with Avon Cosmetics and there's this again beautiful photo um, and you can google it and it has and this is advocacy right Diane didn't even realize 
that this was momentous as a post-operative trans woman in 1980 on the face of Avon, whether they knew or not, that is groundbreaking, that is history in so many ways. And so she was a trailblazer, and she is, and so we want to remember that, especially because it has been 40 years um, since her death. And what's really heartbreaking is the fact that you think of 1981, this is also the same year that the AIDS epidemic began in June 5th. And so she was only around just for a little bit of that. And we don't know like how her life would have resulted if that would have made a came into play or not. We don't know. But nonetheless, her life was extinguished. And so you think of what else happened throughout the 80s, right? This growth. And even into the 90s and 2000s, what we've seen this huge LGBTQ plus growth in our movement with rights and things like that. And to know that she didn't get to see any of that, you know, is so heartbreaking. And so, you know, as we continue to go through this case, I just want you all to think about, you know, Diane. And I just want to share an audio with you all about what Diane was thinking about at this time. But once again, Robin offers to help. Robin paid for the operation. She thought it was the best for the giant, and she was trying to help him. Usually, um, that's when the relationship started to deteriorate. 
Diane, who is going through this tough time, right? And as you heard, there were so many good things that were happening for her. She had gotten married. Robin was there as her maid of honor, had even purchased a ring. So all of this should have been great. But then, of course, as we hear, you know, audio from her good friend Gary, from one of the detectives Longo on the scene, from the Manhattan Police Department, we hear all of this. And what you understand is that there was just a lot of jealousy. So when we go to the night of October 7th, 1981 in Yonkers, New York, Bobby goes to pick up Diane from Gary's apartment. She leaves in her lavender colored little one piece outfit and her pumps. She gets in the car with her husband, trusting that they were gonna go and have a conversation about their marriage, which as you could hear, was falling apart. A lot of infidelity, a lot of jealousy, a lot of plan up to other people. The goal was to figure out what to do next. And to be quite honest, Diane had already made up her mind. She was going to leave Bobby again and Robin for good. Her goal was to get all of her belongings out of Robin's place and finally be moved in with Gary. Well, Diane and Bobby drive out of Yonkers over to the Hudson River. And in the wooded areas, there's some wooded areas over there. And where they're at at that time, Robin arrives. And she and Bobby and Diane are all walking. And they tell her that, you know, there's something that we want you to see. There's something that you need to see. And we think you'll like it. Well, Diana, who is just absolutely brilliant and beautiful and trusting of her best friend and her husband, though estranged and though there's these tensions at play, she begins to walk with them. And as she walks, what's done next is so heartbreaking. Diane, just a few feet in front of Bobby and Robin, They're telling her, hey, close your eyes. We have a surprise for you. And when she does, bang, bang, two shots to the back of the head. According to Bobby Ferreira, the two initial shots were done by Robin Arnold. And then, according to him, he wanted to put Diane out of her misery. The body was twitching. And as a result, he put two more bullets in her head. Diane was dead at 11.50 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on October 7, 1981. Bobby and Robin left Diane's body in the wooded area. It was wrapped in this yellow blanket. And Diane had just gotten a tattoo you know, six months ago of this this beautiful Bugs Bunny, which was one of her favorite cartoon characters. And so, you know, we're gonna fast forward to October 28th of 1981, where they then go back to 
the to the woods and there they take the body and throw it into the Hudson and within a week after that the first week of November November 6 1981 her body is discovered floating in the Hudson River mummified and the only point of identification recognizable feature was that Bugs Bunny tattoo well we're gonna go backwards again we're gonna go back to October 8th of 1981 that Thursday Diane didn't show up to meet with Gary and initially Diane who was known for you know kind of taking off and having time to herself no one really thought much of it you know she was known for wanting to get attention and she would take off and 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 take time for herself and as a result um they didn't report her missing initially and so for several days no one really puts any pieces together that diane unfortunately who is now deceased is even missing well Gary gets a phone call around October 12th stating that no one has seen Diane since the night of October 7th. He can't get a hold of her and he says typically Diane will ignore him for a couple of days but to go an entire week was not normal. And Diane's parents, Bruno and Angelina, Delia, um, who she was close with her mother Angelina but she wasn't as close with her father Bruno because remember this is the late 70s early 80s and so her father wasn't quite accepting but nonetheless they still had some form of a relationship so much to the point where you know her father would speak at her trial later on Um, but Bobby and Robin and Gary all reached out to Diane's parents and her brother to see if she had, to see if they had been able to locate her. And her mother in particular felt that, yeah, this was not usual. Normally three days tops, but a whole week and now going into a second week, it was time to, it was time to report her missing. And that is what's done on October 28th of 1981. So Robin reports her missing as a former fiance, you know, of Diane, a former lover, best friend, maid of honor, her husband, Bobby, they both go in, report her missing. And around that same time, you know, they're also putting her body into the Hudson River. And then fast forward to November 7th, November 6th, excuse me, of 1981, when her body is discovered wrapped up in that yellow blanket and the only recognizable feature is that Bugs Bunny tattoo. It was really heartbreaking. Detectives knew this was a murder. It was evident, the gunshots. But as Diane's body was brought in for autopsy, the coroner realized that Diane was post-operative, initially assumed cisgendered because of the fact that she had gender reassignment surgery. They didn't understand that she was transgendered, but once that was clear, according to the autopsy, 
Detective Longo realized that he needed to shift his focus and look for Diane's, you know, identity because they had no idea who she was. You know, she had no shoes on. Um, When they found her body, there was, she was only wrapped in a blanket. um, And so there was no ID. And so there was really no way to identify Diane. And so the goal was to then reach out to the LGBTQ plus queer community at that time. And so there was this newsletter that was circulating and one of the publications, The Village Voice, which is really heavy and speaking Diane's story. And, um, you know, all of this was circulated at that time. And so as that information finally went from Manhattan, which is where Diane's body was discovered, uh, at the Hudson River in, in Manhattan, but she was living in Yonkers, so the information had to filter from Manhattan to Yonkers, which took several more weeks. So Diane wasn't even officially identified until November 20th, Tidor of 1981, which was not Tidor at that time. Detective Longo makes the death notification. As next of kin, her husband Bobby Ferrer receives the devastating news that her that his wife, Diane, has been murdered. Detective Longo wanted to know if Diane had any jewelry, any, you know, items, things that would be on her that was missing. Well, Bobby mentioned that though they were estranged, Diane wore her wedding ring always. And so the fact that her wedding ring wasn't at Gary's, it meant that whoever killed her must have taken the ring off of her hand after shooting her four times. This is what Bobby is telling Detective Longo. And as a result, whoever took the ring must be the killer. Detective Longo agreed. He definitely felt that there was some connection between the missing jewelry, the missing wedding ring, the missing shoes, as well as Diana's killer. If we could link all of that together, Detective Longo was telling himself, then this case could be solved. And Detective Longo began to think like a lot of seasoned detectives, go to the pawn shops. He reached out to the pawn shops that were in that area. And there was one in particular. And this pawn shop, you know, this G&E pawn shop was pivotal. It not only still had the wedding ring, Diane's ring that was taken off of her dead fingers, but it also had the name of the person who pawned the ring. And that was... Bobby Ferreira. Well, you know, we have to continue to ask ourselves, why didn't Bobby just tell the truth in the beginning? Why fabricate this story and how the detectives go through this whole process of looking for a killer when now they come to realize that this is starting to look closer to home, that Diane's killer or killers are most likely people that she trusted, that she loved and that she knew. Well, Diane definitely was an outspoken, you know, woman and feisty and described as lovable and fun and, you know, compulsive. She would go and do, you know, random things and she was known for, you know, evoking emotions. 
And so Detective Longo was wondering if all of these things that he's learning out from Gary and, and Dave and all these other people in her life, her parents, you know, her ability to be spontaneous, her, her brother DJ, right? All of these people who are, you know, saying, hey, Diane was feisty. We love her. You know, she, 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 she was honest and, and bold and she lived her truth. And so much so, right? Because in November of 1980, she had gender reassignment surgery. And that itself is just, you know, a whole process. But what I want to do is, again, go back and focus on specifically the night of October 7th, 1981. I want to share some audio with you to really give you an idea of what went down on October 7th, 1981. and grass clippings suggest the killing happened in a wooded area. The police sent the body to a medical examiner's office for identification. The cause of death is also noted. When the body was autopsied by the medical examiner, it was found that the cause of death was four gunshot wounds to the back of the head. The autopsy also reveals a small tattoo on the victim's arm. She had on her left shoulder a funny tattoo. I added that information to the missing persons report. And they make a rare discovery. After the autopsy results were filed, it was clear that at one time, although a woman now, at one time it had been a male. And you know, 
this autopsy was pivotal, again, because it allowed for Detective Longo and his team to then now narrow that search. And again, had Diane not had that tattoo, not had her affirming surgery, identifying her could have been a lot more difficult. And the only reason it took as long as it did to identify her was because of the circulation. You know, we have to remember that this is 1981, and so there's not cell phones. Um, there were fax machines heavily used. Um, you know, you're also just looking at a whole different way of communicating back then. So, unfortunately, you know, Diane was at the morgue for quite a while, and that's a heartbreaking tale because you know you think to yourself. Bobby, her husband, who knew where she was, right? He, at the very least, even whether we know for sure if Robin Arnold was involved or not, because that's a whole other thing that we're going to get into down further into the case. But, you know, you think to yourself that, Bobby, you could have, of anyone out of the two of you, you could have let authorities know that she was there you could have made an anonymous phone call. And so to have her family, right? Because her mother, at this point, it's been almost two months. You're talking about her body not officially been identified until the latter part of November. So you're going into the Thanksgiving holidays, the winter holidays, and this, these, this family has no idea what has happened to their daughter. No idea that she has been laying in the moor unidentified since... October 28th since November 6th so all of this is really heartbreaking when we think about it when we go through this case and we talk about these complexities of love and 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 then this level of apathy because Bobby will tell anyone even to this day that he loved Diane that he just could not figure out how to make it work they just couldn't figure out how to get on the same page. At one point they were, but somewhere between then and now, the relationship had became so toxic, right? And this is where we need to also look into the, the pieces of intimate partner violence, financial abuse, you know, emotional abuse, manipulation. Yes, Diane was no, you know, pushover. She was, you know, she was tough as nails. Absolutely. But she is the victim in this case. And she was kind and trusting. And all she wanted to do was be her best Diana Ross and, you know, do her interpretations and express herself boldly and freely. And she loved someone who did not want to see her shine, who did not want to see her flourish. Both he and Robin Arnold wanted to control Diane. They felt if they couldn't have her, then no one could. And that's really the key element of this case, is control and manipulation. The financial abuse comes from Robin being able to hold the money over Diane. And you'll hear in, in other clippings throughout this episode where someone will mention because Robin paid for Diane's surgery, gave 
you know, she was also helping with the, the initial apartment that Bobby and Diane had moved into as well, as well as paying for the wedding ring. Why would Diane get involved with any other cis woman? So there's that level of financial abuse there. And then also throwing up the fact of the genitalia, whose genitalia is real and who isn't. All of that is ways of controlling and manipulating a situation. And when in such a way this happens, we have to be willing to take a look into what was the true motive. Because at one point, Robin too was engaged to Diane Ash John. So where was her psyche in this? This woman of privilege, this white woman of privilege, 26 at the time that this homicide happened, where was her mind? How did she go from meeting Diane in December of 1979 at a Christmas party at Zippers to then within two years, possibly pulling the first two shots, you know? How did it get that bad? It's all about the control. And when they started to lose that control, when Bobby realized that Diane wasn't just going to settle for him being the only man, the end all be all, right? She was getting back out there. She was putting herself out there with Vince and others, cis women as well. And so this element of where they could no longer have control of her and the fact that she was moving on and she was living with Gary. And let's be very clear, Gary was just a friend. However, Bobby did have his suspicions. So there was just this, you know, uh, increased tension that by that night, by 11.50 p.m., Diane Delia would be dead from four gunshot wounds to the back of the head laid out there for several weeks and then thrown into the Hudson then reported missing by the people who murdered her so again when we talk about bizarre that is what we are talking about but it's also important to think about this again this component of intimate partner violence now there was never any evidence of physical abuse from Robin and or Bobby except for the shooting itself But Bobby did have a way of verbally abusing Diane, you know, putting down her new genitalia, her new surgery, you know, he, you know, played off of the fact that he was an attractive man. He, at this age, um, at this point was 22. So you had Robin, who's 26, Diane, who's 24, Bobby, who's 22. And in 1981, so you have these young 20-somethings, New Yorkers, who are all just dealing with their own stuff, right? You have to look at the AIDS epidemic beginning. Bobby, who is coming from, you know, the Vietnam piece, he joined the U.S. Navy around the latter part of the closing of the Vietnam War. And so then he has those triggers and those traumas and he goes AWOL and he meets, you know, Diane and they have this tumultuous affair and then he gets arrested and so there's been this just kind of quickness right with the moving of everything that I think by 1981 I think by the time Diane had had her surgery she had experienced married life and even the complexities of that and then also just 
finally getting back out there, modeling for Avon, you know, also moving in with Gary. By 1981, Diane was like, I don't need this. I don't need Robin's money, right? Because at this point, she's modeling. She's getting into her online work. She still is, you know, doing Diana Ross interpretations. So it's not like she's, you know, completely, you know, destitute. And then on top of that, she's this beautiful post-operative trans woman, right? And you're going to hear friends talk about just how beautiful she is and how beautiful she was inside and out. And so she didn't need Bobby's affirmation, right? She was getting that from others. And so Robin and Bobby was losing that control. And Diane knew for herself that she wanted to move forward alone. And that was what the communication, again, was supposed to be about on October 7th, 1981. But, you know, what I also want to discuss too about this intimate partner violence piece, and we see this especially now more with a lot of our trans community members who get into relationships, especially our trans femme and trans mask folks, and even our non-binary people as well. But this case isn't quite like some of our other ones that we've covered in the past. This one wasn't classified as a hate crime And I want to share a little bit with you about this and give you an idea of why it wasn't quite considered a hate crime. That's across the country. I think homosexuality is moral perversion. With crusaders like Reverend Jerry Falwell leading the charge. This is the early 80s and there was no specific designation by NYPD, the patrol guide or anywhere else that uh, this was going to be investigated as some sort of hate crime. But before police can understand the motive of the killer, first, they must identify the body. We checked with the other patients. They had no information at all. They figure their best bet is the drag queen community in New York City. They said they were newspapers on the website, they put an article in there to try and help us identify him. And just a week after Diane went missing, Gary gets a call. Robin and Bobby are together, searching for Diane. Bob and Robin were like, we can't find Diane. We don't know where she is. She disappeared. She was mad and she took off. You know how she is. She gets mad and she disappears for a few days. Gary hasn't seen Diane since she left on October 7th. And to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't really think anything of it because Diane had done some crazy things in her past when she wanted someone's attention. I just thought it was one of those things. But when he hears that Bobby and Robin haven't seen her either, worry turns to panic. So that's when they all decided to call the police and report her as a missing person. Robin reports Diane missing on October 17th to Yonkers Police. Doesn't filter down to Manhattan. Nobody knows where to look for her. We all go to Robin's apartment and hang out, and we just sat there and waited patiently. Weeks passed before Diane's worried friends hear any news. But then, late November, the article that Detective Long would place in the local drag queen newsletter in Manhattan makes its way to Yonkers. Friends see the notice in the paper, and one specific detail stands out. It was a picture of the body from the shoulders down with the bunny tattoo. And once we saw that, we all knew who it was. Finally, Detective Longo gets the call he's been waiting for. The only lady named Robin Arnold had come to the morgue 
night that the fire body. Robin is horrified, but she confirms that it is indeed Diane. Diane has been identified. Her case is heartbreaking. Diane has been identified. She, you know, this this beautiful, vivacious, bold, outspoken 24-year-old, full of life, nowhere to go but up. Um, her body has been identified again on November 20th of 1981 by Robin Arnold. And you know what's interesting is when you when you listen in is that, you know, they said Robin is horrified. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, of course, you know, because according to Bobby, you were there. You pulled the first, you, you, you know, you, you, you took the first two shots. And then Bobby, you know, finished the act. So for me in this, I think what's sad is that it's just almost like an insult to injury because you have this person who claimed to be a best friend, a sister, a former lover and fiance, who is going to identify the body, who reported her missing, right? All of these like diabolical things. You murder her, you report her missing, you identify the body, and then you tell the detectives, you and Bobby, to go like look at the pun shops only to then like almost like in a way get yourself caught. But what's interesting more is as we continue to go through this case is that it's also connected to one of my favorite soap operas, General Hospital. You know, once Diane's body was identified, there was a tip that came in from one of Bobby's lovers, Dominic Giorgio. And around January of 1982, a couple of months after Diane at this point has now been laid to rest um, in Yonkers. And um, there's, you know, there's still no arrest yet. There, you know, Detective Longo is searching different pawn shops. So he hasn't quite gotten to the pawn shop just yet where with the ring to identify that it's Bobby who pawned it. And so before that happens, Dominic Giorgio goes to the Manhattan precinct and you know, tells them that he was in the apartment with Robin and Bobby and he hears Robin tell Bobby that she killed Diane. Well, that was one of the leading testimonies that um, resulted in Robin being arrested, right? It was that ear witness testimony of Dominic hearing Robin state that she murdered Diane, which led to Robin being arrested. But another piece that came from Dominic was him getting Bobby to write a confession letter to give to the detectives. So all of this is, you know, going into place while Detective Longo is out here searching. And all of it's going to meet in the middle where Detective Longo is going to be able to present the ring right, and really put this in Bobby's face and then have this confession letter that Dominic Giorgio gives the detectives. So all of this evidence is gonna start coming in around January of 1982. And so what you see happen 
is that, you know, this case ultimately does go to trial because both Bobby and Robin were arrested for second degree murder. And when they were arrested for second degree murder, they both got attorneys. Robin had a high priced attorney, one of the best in New York. And Bobby had a public defender. So the two angles presented by both uh, attorneys, which both Robin and Bobby were, um, went to trial together. Their trials were not separate. And that was intentional because according to Bobby and according to Dominic, both Robin and Bobby were co-conspirators. So their trial should be at the same time. And so, you know, um, as, as this is happening, you have Bobby's attorney who is stating that Robin's this, you know, wealthy heiress who was obsessed with first John. And then when John became Diane and got back with Bobby out of fear of losing, you know, Diane, Robin decided to even immerse herself more into Diane's life by paying for the surgery, getting them an apartment, letting them move in. I mean, you name it, they all were like the three musketeers for quite a while. And then you also have, you know, this inability to cope with the fact that Diane has now been with a cis, another cisgender woman other than Robin. And for, according to Bobby's um, defense attorney and the prosecutors, that was the catalyst that led to Robin being the first person to pull the trigger twice. Then you have Robin's very high-priced attorney, and he shares his perspective of Bobby. Bobby, this macho, machismo, Italian, you know, stallion kind of Don Juan player who is known for just like loving him and leaving him, but yet Diane was the only one he could not let go. He loved Diane so much that he encouraged her to have gender reassignment surgery. And then when she did, he didn't want that, but what he wasn't expecting her to do was to begin to create a life for herself outside of being Diane Delia Farrar because she had changed her last name to Farrar prior to her murder, prior to her hateful homicide. And that's what we also have to take a look at and really think about with this case too, the hate that went behind this because you'll hear Bobby and Robin still both to this day will say that they love Diane, that they could never hurt Diane, Um, but they did. And it's all stemmed from this hatred that they had for her because they was losing control of her. And so, you know, this homicide didn't have to happen. Everyone could have walked away. But the reality is, is that Bobby and Robin could not let her go. And so what I want to do is also just take a moment and share with you the, you know, just a little bit about the tip that, you know, Bobby, um, that, that, that Dominic gave to Detective Longo. So I want to just share that with you all. Bobby and Robin, and 
Finally, Bobby broke down. We confessed to him what had happened the night of October 7th, 1981. Now, I convinced Bobby to write this down. And his written confession describes Diane's death in great detail. He claims that he convinced Diane to go for a drive with him to discuss their relationship and then meet up with Robin later that night. They tell her they found something in the woods that she may want to see. He states that he and uh, Robin lured Diane into the woods. According to Bobby, he and Diane were walking next to each other. Robin was in the rear. They got to where they were going. This is a small park underneath the Tamazay Bridge where people docked their boats. And uh, at that point, Robin pulled out the gun and shot Diane in the head. Twice. According to Bobby's confession, after Robin shoots Diane, Bobby takes the gun from her. Bobby didn't know if she was dead, but he shot her twice more. He shot the other two shots because the body was twitching. He didn't want Diane to suffer. He didn't want Diane to suffer, and she did. The conclusion of this case is that Bobby was convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life for second degree murder and was released in January of 2008 and still remains in Yonkers to this day. Robin was found not guilty of all charges and went on to marry and have children of her own and pursue her nursing career. And she too still lives in New York. You know, as we prepare to conclude, I just want to take a moment and just really share with everyone this heartbreaking case and just how it didn't have to happen this way. And I also just want to leave with a few remarks from Gary to Diane as we prepare to conclude. remember you, Diane Delia, born April 15, 1957, and died October 7, 1981. We remember you, Love Bug, gone but never forgotten. 
yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, and always. Thank you all so much for tuning in to season two of A Hateful Homicide. My name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Please follow us on Instagram at Mallory Jenna 90 and also at A Hateful Homicide. You can also listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms alike. Again, stay tuned for another episode of A Hateful Homicide next Saturday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you.